The following program is brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment. Welcome to an hour of delicious conversation with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Dish with celebrity chefs, cookbook authors, and food experts, and gain inspirational ideas. You'll learn kitchen wisdom, wine education, and culinary trends, and eat and drink like you've never done before. Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn starts now. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I hope that your July 4th weekend has been festive and fabulous. This is radio's answer to culinary conversation and inspiration, the culture of food and living the best life. And we're celebrating food and its ability to feed the soul. You can gain culinary intelligence right here and right now. If you're passionate about the process, if you love discovering that perfect recipe and care Carefully selecting your ingredients, then adding those special touches to make the meal uniquely your own. Well, then elevate your passion just by staying tuned because it's my goal to make every day more delicious and to feed your insatiable appetite. You can savor the flavor as I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com, C-H-E-F-J-A-M-I-E.com. I'm all about real life and real flavors, new experiences, emerging trends on a mission to find the most exciting places and to bring you the best interviews and products and insight into the wide world of food and technology and grand wines and refreshing cocktails. So summer and making summer a blast to me is all about becoming a better grill master. And we made it. It's grilling season, right? We made it to summer, which means that it's time to talk about meat. While it isn't seasonal like fruits and vegetables, there are definitely times of the year when certain cuts are more popular than others. So for example, in the fall and the winter, I always gravitate toward cuts that go into cozy braises and comforting stews, right? But in the spring and the summer, we look for cuts that are easy to grill, cuts that benefit from a fresh flavorful, herbaceous marinade, and really, I would say, great grilled items that pair well with those cool cocktails or ice-cold lagers. And one of the most popular steaks in the spring and the summertime is flank steak. Now, I happen to love a flank. I love a skirt steak. I love a hanger steak as well. The hanger steak is really tender and full of flavor, and it cooks very quickly, as does a skirt steak. But a flank steak is a little more elevated to me. I love that it's affordable, it's flavorful, and it works in a wide range of dishes, but it's a little bit thicker than those super thin cuts. So it's great grilled and sliced into fajitas or tacos or even steak salad. It's what I use for Korean barbecue or a great steak sandwich. And it works well on its own too. So if it shared the plate with some grilled vegetables and a fresh summer salad, you'd have dinner done. Now, flank steak gets its beautiful beef flavor, and it's very satisfying chew from its location on the animal's body. It actually lays across the belly of the cow, and that's an area that is very well exercised. And because the muscles are stronger, they're a little bit chewier, but they get great flavor. Now, flank is recognizable by its teardrop shape, and you can see the thin muscle fibers that run down the length of the flank steak. Now, these muscle striations 
can make flank steak tough if it isn't prepared properly. So here are my best tips. I think a flank steak lends itself very well to a marinade, one that has some beautiful acid balance in it. I would season your flank steak with salt and pepper in the marinade as well because flank tends to absorb the flavors and the acid will permeate the meat and allow the other herbaceous seasoned notes to definitely uh, build fabulous flavor for your flank steak. Now, the flank doesn't need that much marinade, in fact, or much marination. It needs an hour or two and just enough to cover the steak. But I wouldn't exceed overnight because the acid will begin to cook or break down the meat too much so. When it comes to cooking, I always cook a flank steak on high heat. The flank tends to get chewier the longer it's cooked, so a nice rare or medium rare is perfect. And a flank steak should take about three to four minutes on the first side and two minutes on the second inside of a super hot grill for the perfect medium rare. And of course, no matter what cut you're cooking, a steak needs to chill, right? It needs to relax. And letting your steak rest for about five to 10 minutes before cutting it actually helps the muscles relax and it seals in the juices and allows them to redistribute. It's a must for every steak. And I always tent some aluminum foil over my steaks to keep them warm. Most importantly, though, especially with a flank steak, you want to slice against the grain. It's really important since the muscle grain is so apparent, it's also very easy to see that you can slice perpendicular for really toothsome, fabulous flavor. And with those tips, I think you're guaranteed to make the ultimate flank steak. I've posted a quick mustard marinade that I think lends itself really well to a flank steak with two kinds of mustard, sherry vinegar, garlic, ginger, and a little bit of soy sauce on my Facebook page at Chef Jamie Gwen. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter posting new recipes galore, again, at Chef Jamie Gwen. And by the way, if you missed a live broadcast of this show, then be sure to check out iTunes where you'll find our podcasts from years past and from just last week. In fact, you'll find us on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Okay, here's my coolest culinary idea for the weekend or for a weekday for that matter. This is what I call three-minute frozen indulgence. So you don't have an ice cream maker, or maybe you just don't want to drag it out of the garage cabinet, right? Well, I get it. So here's the scoop when it comes to making quick, cool treats without an ice cream machine. I love a frozen treat, especially for a last-minute dessert when no one's expecting it. And there are two basic methods when it comes to making ice cream at home without a machine. You need a food processor, and you can always make a simple ice cream base, you know, the custard base. Freeze the base till solid. Then using a a sharp, big sturdy knife, break it up or chunk it up into frozen pieces of ice cream base. Put those in your food processor and process until you get the consistency of soft serve ice cream. It works really well, I have to say, and it's a great quick ice cream. But even better, the second method requires frozen fruit, 
some sort of creamy liquid, and a little bit of sweetener. And with just three minimal ingredients, you can have big spoonfuls of delicious ice cream in no time. Now, I find myself eating it right out of the food processor, but that's just me. I like to buy fresh fruit at the farmer's market, ripe and sweet, take it home, wash it, cut it into chunks, and freeze it on a parchment paper lined baking sheet or a Silpat mat. This is what we call IQF or Individually Quick Frozen Fruit. Now, you can use the frozen fruit anytime, or you can use store-bought frozen fruit as well. By combining it in your food processor with a little bit of dairy, as I mentioned, it could be Greek non-fat yogurt, uh, could be good whole milk, could be mascarpone cheese, a little bit of sweetener, and those frozen fruit chunks. And about four to five minutes later, after you let your food processor process, you have a fruity, fabulous, almost gelato-like consistency that is super delicious. Now, my chef's tip for that three-minute frozen indulgence is to use super fine sugar because it dissolves quicker and it creates smoother, cool treats than using traditional granulated sugar. But if you don't have super fine sugar at home, here's what you do. Just blend the granulated sugar in your food processor by itself for about 30 seconds before you add the other ingredients. It's a great trick for creating your own sugar dust. And if you're looking for those three and four ingredient frozen indulgence recipes, I've posted them on the website at chefjamie.com under Think Like a Chef, because it is my goal to make you a better cook in your own kitchen. You'll want to stay tuned because there's more delicious conversation coming up. Nina Teicholz is the author of The Big Fat Surprise, and there's lots of controversial conversation going on about her book, all about why butter, meat, and cheese belong in a healthy diet. If you read the Time Magazine article all about butter and you were as intrigued as I was, you'll want to hear from Nina coming up. Plus, the master sommelier is in the house, Michael Jordan, and he's sharing how any onophile can take the level one court of master sommelier's test. Plus, we're getting a little techie later in the hour. Scott Wiselow of Best Buy is here on how to recycle your electronics. And if you're looking for a new grocery shopping experience here in Southern California, I hope you've been to a Smart and Final store lately. They are better than ever. You know, Smart and Final, their new and better than ever stores offer something that your supermarket doesn't. They give you the fresh produce, the great wine selection, the dairy and the meats, but they also give you everything your club store does, sizes large and small, but there's no membership required. And I think that their exclusive brands just like the national brands, are the best values you'll find. I love that their cashiers are quick, that the aisles are big enough to get a couple shopping carts through without hurting anybody too. So for all your weekly shopping needs, I hope you check out smartandfinal.com and find a location near you. Right now, a couple specials going on at Smart and Final. Their exclusive brand, First Street Chicken Leg Quarters, fresh at 89 cents per pound, plus fresh red cherries grown in the Northwest, so so sweet this summer at $2.99 for a two-pound package. Stay tuned. There's more delicious conversation in your radio. Chef Jamie Gwen. I'll be right back. A bottle of red, a bottle of white. It all depends upon your appetite. 
Cheers to you and welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Yes, friends, dreams do come true. If you're a rosé lover, a cab drinker, or you're passionate about Pinot, you can increase your knowledge and actually become a certified sommelier. That's right. The Court of Master Sommeliers, for the first time, is offering wine education classes in cities across the United States, providing you with an introduction to the basics of wine, from viticulture to the history and laws of wine-growing regions around the world to food and wine pairings. The best part, though, is that the classes will be taught by master psalms, so you know you'll be getting the finest training. And one of those very masters, as we call him, the sommelier for the people, will be on the teaching team. And I'm proud to say that I trained under him and became the onophile that I am today. He's here to dish on how you can distinctively differentiate between nutty and oaky in no time. He is Michael Jordan, and I'm so glad to have you back, MJ. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Chef Jamie. I I just love being with you there. Oh, thank you. Okay, Um, we've complimented you and congratulated you in years past for achieving the distinction of Master Sommelier. We know it takes years of preparation, a very unwavering commitment to say the least. But if you would uh, define for us the court of Master Sommeliers and this elite group that you, I know, are proud to call yourself one of. Thank you. And while I'm delighted to do that, I want to congratulate you again for passing your exam with flying colors. I want the public and all of our listeners to know that you are one of so very few chefs that have attained any form of certification from the Court of Master Sommeliers. I mean, you're in rarefied air, and and kudos to you. That's kind. Thank you very much. But there are 200 and... 24 master psalms in the world. There are extraordinarily talented wine professionals like yourself. And this is where everyone starts, right? With this initial exam. That's true. There are four levels of examination with the court, three parts at the master level, three parts of the master exam. But there are four levels of tests to get up to that master diploma examination. And what we're talking about right now is the introductory course, It's two full days of lectures and tastings guided by maybe three or four master sommeliers, uh, myself included in the the teaching team that goes out, and then followed by a a pretty short uh, 70-question exam that only takes about 45 minutes to actually take the examination. And upon finishing that, there's a little certificate and a, a pin that pin is kind of like the, the bloody red badge of courage. I was going to say, I call that my proud pin, just yes. so you know. That is yes. a proud pin. And, and it is an extraordinary amount of knowledge, albeit called introductory. And I think that there is so much to learn, even for those that might think they have an extensive wine knowledge to start. There's not only viticulture and history of wine, but there is learning or beginning the process of learning deductive tasting. And that really applies to blind tasting, as we call it today. That's the buzzword in wine tasting. If you go to a festival or a seminar, you know, what exactly is blind or as Craig and I talk a lot about double blind tasting? Sure. And that is one of the most beneficial parts of this introductory course that's two days long is that we actually walk the candidates through or the students through almost 20 or 24 different wines through the deductive 
tasting, which we all call blind tasting. And what it basically is is learning how to unlock the secrets that are in that glass that give you the clues to tell you when you don't know, you're not looking at the label in the bottle, it's hidden away, what this wine could possibly be, what varietal of grape it's made from, what region of the world, and even maybe down to what village is it made from, and what vintage year were those grapes picked and, and harvested and, and made into wine. And so, yes, there are enough clues that we can teach and learn to identify with certainty many wines by grape, the varietal grape, the village it's from, and the vintage year it was produced after describing it thoroughly, what it looks like, smells like, and tastes like. It's magical. It is magical. And I think that's the best part, and onophiles will agree, that the tasting perspective, like when you can actually smell and taste vanilla notes from a barrel-aged wine, is what motivates the curiosity to grow your wine knowledge. So the introductory course gives us an expectation of building really a base for wine knowledge that you can continue to build upon from there. We're going to give you the building blocks and the formulas from which to develop those skill sets, even though somebody may come in with a tremendous uncanny nose or palate and be able to describe flavors and aromas, maybe more so than another person will, we can and we will walk them through tasting 20-some-odd wines together and describe the flavors, the aromas, and conclusions, right. how they, you come to those conclusions, but give you a grid, a kind of a, a checklist, if you would, uh, to, to create a kind of a scientific formula to do it rather than just doing it at random in an emotional way, which right. is like impossible. <laughs> it's it, just impossible. Which is like yeah. choosing a wine label from the pretty picture. Yes. Um, I will say the lists and the knowledge and the conversation that you're alluding to is something that I've taken with me throughout my wine education and my continuing education and love for wine. And I'm able to, from my very early classes with you, sort of recall back those descriptors and use them to better my wine knowledge day in and day out. And I think it's something very empowering. You don't have to be a wine expert to take the leap to explore the Court of Master Sommelier's introductory course. Everyone there comes from a different walk of life, right? You might aspire to become a sommelier in a restaurant, or you might be a collector of sorts. Oh, that's so true. As a matter of fact, while I would say most of the folks that are there are in the hospitality industry in one form or another. Right, professionals. In, yeah, they could be in restaurants, hotels, certainly actually serving wines as sommeliers. There are at least a quarter and sometimes a third of the people in the classes that uh, they don't even work in the industry of hospitality, mm-hmm. food, or beverage. They are folks that are interested or fascinated with the world of wine and flavors and cooking and and uh, not just wine, but you know the Court of Master Sommeliers. We will teach all about beer and cocktails and uh, you know sake and all kinds of other things, including even a, a slight amount on cigar service. I wonder if you would share, um, because you have your finger on the pulse of restaurants and hotels around the world in traveling for Jackson Family Wines and teaching as you do what the climate is for sommeliers today in restaurants. We know that they're 
much talked about. And we know that there's, a, I think, a growing and a much needed and tremendous expectation, but also a trust that exists with sommeliers in a restaurant atmosphere today, that there really are extraordinarily knowledgeable experts out there. Oh, for sure. And I think that whole part of the industry is just catching fire right now. Uh, it's so highly in demand. And yes. a lot of that has to do with our social media and news in real time and things like the Cooking Channel and TV Food Network and shows like yours that are getting this information about things delicious out mm-hmm. to the general public and the world. Uh, they're really keying in on this because not only is it fascinating, but it is delicious. It is an experience mm-hmm. that every single person can have. It's not just for the selected few. Anybody with uh, enough money to buy a dinner, can go into a fine restaurant or even a, a reasonably, just a ta- like a table service restaurant, and if, if they have a wine list, ask for assistance with the list. Why would you ask for assistance with the list? Well, you want to get a delicious wine at a great value because anybody can spend 100 bucks on a $100 bottle of wine if you have $100. But finding a great wine at a super reasonable price and a great value that's where the sommelier or the wine expert, it could be the waiter that's serving you that has a pin or a certification as sommelier who can assist you with the knowledge of the wine list and the food and the food pairing and get you delicious wine for a good price, something you'll really enjoy, something you may have never tried, mm-hmm. but you find you truly love. I find people wanting to go back the next night and bring their friends because mm-hmm. they want to be a hero too and mm-hmm. turn them onto this great pairing or wine or delicious thing that they've discovered. It's really great. It really is. And I will say there's something extraordinarily motivating about it when you speak of it on the radio show here. And um, I'm very grateful for your adoration. You are adored here as well. And I love that the whole country has an opportunity to learn from you, albeit that you're teaching across the country. There is a class coming up that you will be on the training team for, and it is in Southern California coming up next month, August 5th and 6th in Los Angeles. And you can learn more. You can find out the courses and the schedules at mastersommeliers.org, M-A-S-T-E-R-S-O-M-M-E-L-I-E-R-S.org. And I can tell you firsthand what to expect. Expect Michael Jordan for two full days, lucky you, and I mean full, showing you (laughs) the most authentic love of wine. And I will say, prepare yourself. It is a wealth of knowledge to bask in, but no matter how much you love wine, eight hours of wine lecture is not always easy. But I, I guarantee that even those with years of experience will learn quite a few things that you might not have realized you didn't know. Michael, we can't wait to have you back next month. We'll dish on more summer wines. And in fact, we're taking wine questions as well for the sommelier for the people. That's you. We'll see you here soon. Uh, Chef Jamie, thank you so very much. And again, you you. know, uh, my heart heart goes to you and uh, Mm -hmm. your recent nuptials. And uh, Thank you. All right, you take care now. Yeah, and the same to you. There's more to toast and cheers about right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Don't go away. Perfecting your palate every Sunday, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We do have the best culinary thinkers on this show. So consider this. Everything you've been told about dieting is wrong. The 100-calorie snacks, not helpful. Eliminating butter and fat, 
might actually be hurting you and you really should have a steak for dinner. There was a Time Magazine article all about butter and it highlighted the new book released by investigative journalist Nina Teicholz. And after reading the article, I had to read her book. It's called The Big Fat Surprise, and it reveals the unthinkable, that the low-fat nutrition advice over the past 60 years that we've been fed has amounted to a vast, uncontrolled experiment on the entire population with possible disastrous consequences for our health. And Nina joins us live, and I am so delighted to dish on her new book release with tremendous early praise from not only the New York Times, but New York Times bestsellers, and even Nathan Mirvold, the author of Modernist Cuisine, who has graced this program. I'm delighted to have Nina join us in your radio. She's written for Gourmet, The New Yorker, The Economist, The New York Times, and The Washington Post. And she is dishing on the big fat surprise, why butter, meat, and cheese belong in a healthy diet. And I'm delighted to have you, Nina. Welcome. Thank you for having me. (laughs) For decades, we have been told that the best possible diet includes cutting back on fat and that we weren't getting healthier or thinner because we weren't trying hard enough, right? Yes. Give us the brief version of why it's all wrong. (laughs) Well... The story begins in the 1950s when the nation was in a terror about the rising tide of heart disease, which had arisen sort of out of nowhere to become the nation's number one killer. President Eisenhower himself had a heart attack in 1955, Mm -hmm. and there were a bunch of ideas about what might be causing heart disease. One scientist named Ansel Keys thought that it was saturated fats. Saturated fats would raise your cholesterol and therefore clog your arteries, and he was this... um, He was just this charismatic, outsized man, and he was able to get that idea implanted into the American Heart Association in 1961, same year he was on the cover of Time magazine. And he that was the very first anti-saturated fat guidelines for the nation, so telling everybody to cut back on meat, cheese, dairy, butter. And, you know, the story unfolds from there. It's really an incredible history of how this, hypothesis, just an idea, became solidified into dogma without ever being properly scientifically tested. The proof, the scientific proof was never strong. And it has since been all those early studies. I, you know, I went back, I spent almost nine years on this book going back, researching all the early studies, looking at all the, the purported evidence to show that saturated fat causes heart disease and that, by the way, that fat is supposed to make you fat. And there have now been, I mean, not only my reevaluation of all these studies, but two big groups of scientists, including scientists from Harvard and Berkeley, who've gone back all over the same, the same early studies and also concluded saturated fats do not cause heart disease. Fat does not make you fat. Okay, so then can you conclude after nine years of citing hundreds of studies and writing what will, I think, be the new manual on how to create a healthy diet for each and every one of us. Can you conclude what has made us fat? I think there are two big contenders that have a growing amount of data behind them. One is that in cutting out meat, butter, cheese, dairy, eggs, we've cut back our saturated fat consumption by 11% over the last 30 years. And in that time, we've ramped up our carbohydrate consumption by 25%. 
So that's, you know, the big bottom slab of the USDA food pyramid, which is what we've been told to do. We've been told to eat 60% of our calories as carbohydrates, grains, fruit, rice, pasta, and we've done that. We eat a lot more of those foods, and I think there's now a growing base of evidence to show that it's not only sugar and high fructose corn syrups make people fat and seem to cause adverse cholesterol effects in the blood, but really a diet too high in carbohydrates overall, this 60% carbohydrate diet really has poor outcomes for health in terms of obesity, diabetes, and heart disease compared to a diet that is really lower in carbs and higher in fat and protein and and animal foods. So carbohydrates is one idea that I think has a growing body of evidence behind it. The other one is vegetable oils, which, you know, when we were told to, when the American Heart Association told us to cut out saturated fats, it recommended switching over to vegetable oils, safflower, sunflower, peanut, now mostly soybean. We went from having zero amount of those in our diet in 1900 to 78% of all of our calories now come from mainly soybean oil. Mm -hmm. You know, before 1900, the only fats that American housewives cooked with were butter and lard. There's been a big shift over to vegetable oils, and one of the things that I do in my book is I go through some of the literature um, showing the problems with these oils, especially when they're heated, and especially at high temperatures over long periods of time, such as now, are happening in in restaurant fryers across the country, you know, they degenerate into literally hundreds of oxidation products that are increasingly being studied and have very worrisome implications for human health. They produce huge amounts of inflammation, and they're linked to Alzheimer's and oxidation of your cholesterol, which is not a good thing and causes unstable plaques. So vegetable oils and carbohydrates both have increased enormously in this past century, And I think the science really points towards them. What has been tested is the idea that saturated fats might cause heart disease. And those studies have really turned up empty-handed. And that's what I think is so interesting, is it's taken this much time and writers and uh, investigative journalists like yourself to go back and try to make sense of all the studies and to read, like you quote in the book, and speak to Blake Donaldson's revelations about low-carbohydrate diet and how much individual sources were believed for their opinions. And then it was taken so much so into consideration that we should follow this guideline when there were no statistics yet. And it's taken that long for the studies to come to fruition, right? And for this many years to pass for us to frighteningly look back and think maybe we had it all wrong, like the fast food chains you speak about, shifting to trans fat-free alternatives, and then as you spoke about, us finding out that it might even be toxic in the long run. It's a huge and complex story. In my book, I I try to talk about what happened politically, what was the role of of the food industry. I mean, the food industry has influenced nutrition science going back to that very first American Heart Association recommendation for to switch to vegetable oils. You know, Procter & Gamble, maker of Crisco Oil, had been a fundamentally important backer of the American Heart Association back in the 1940s. And big food has had a hand in our nutrition policies. And I sort of explore that. But I also think that the whole story was really fundamentally one of scientists gone wrong. So they just facing this pressing need to provide some kind of public health advice about heart disease and pushing the science beyond what it was ready 
but beyond when it when it was really ready to say anything. So, um, so it was a kind of a rush to judgment, and right. then there was the institutionalization of that bad advice. So it was adopted not only by the American Heart Association but the National Institute of Health. Eventually, the entire federal government gets in behind it. The USDA dietary guidelines starting in 1980, and those massive wheels of government getting behind this idea, it really ended up silencing the critics. Another sort of tragic and fascinating story about the critics, because of course there were many along the way, but what happened to them when they spoke out and how eventually they they just had to fold their case. I think the stories are incredible. And it prompted so many thoughts in my mind about what we've been told about the Mediterranean diet, about Robert Atkins and his full fat, have a steak and two eggs for breakfast, you'll lose weight concept. And it led me to question, was Robert Atkins right? Well, (laughs) Basically, yes. I mean, in his day, when he became famous in the early 1970s, there was no science behind what he was saying, and that was a problem. All he had were his medical files to point to, even though there were thousands of them. They all are still only anecdotal. But in the last decade, there have been numerous really good, rigorous clinical trials where they've actually fed people. They don't just give them a diet book. Those kinds of trials are less reliable. But I'm talking about good, reliable clinical trials lasting up to two years to really to see the long-term consequences. And the results of those trials really clearly show that a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet is better for your health than a low-fat diet in terms of diabetes and heart disease and your ability to lose weight. Mm. So it seems that Dr. Atkins really was right, and now there is a science to back that up. Interesting. Okay, leave us with this. I was very much surprised to learn that the low-fat diet was proven especially harmful to women. And it was scary information, in fact. So uh, as far as male and female, is there any guidelines or suggestions in all of your research that you can give us as to how we should eat differently, per se? Yeah. I mean, there's a section on women and children where I talk about how they got roped into a diet that was was for middle-aged men to help them supposedly fight heart disease and how women and children got included in that from 1970 on, even though there was absolutely no data on them at all, Mm -hmm. and that when they were finally tested, there were some pretty surprising results about how the low-fat diet was particularly seemed particularly bad for them. Um, you know, I think for everybody that this again going back to this last decade of really good rigorous clinical trials, you know, to eat a higher fat diet with fat and protein, those they come perfectly packaged in the right proportions in animal foods and they are highly satiating. So, and they're incredibly nutritionally dense and to absorb the nutrients you need the fat that goes with them. So like whole milk, whole whole fat yogurt, um, eggs, and cheese, and, and red meat, which is incredibly nutritionally dense and far more nutritionally dense than chicken. So um, it has all kinds of things that chicken doesn't have, folate, selenium, iron, zinc. So those are great whole foods with whole fats that we have been avoiding because we think that saturated fat causes heart disease, but it doesn't. Right. So they're great, delicious foods. Okay, um, so just so you know, I've always gone back to butter. <laughs> butter is so delicious. Butter is so delicious. And and I certainly appreciate your encouragement and support to consume more. Everything in moderation, I believe, uh, 
not this book though. Read it cover to cover. Find out the true story for yourself. The book is called The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat, and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet. It is written by uh, Nina Teicholz, T-E-I-C-H-O-L-Z. And you can learn more at thebigfatsurprise.com. Nina, it was a pleasure. Thank you for sharing your passion. I truly appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me on yes, your show. It's of been course. really nice. There's always stimulating conversation right here in your radio when it comes to fabulous food, so don't touch your dial. Chef Jamie Gwen, I'll be right back. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, making your life better one Sunday radio show at a time. Interesting to note that technology is the fastest growing waste stream on the planet. But did you know that there is someone close by who will take your electronics and recycle them for free? It is truly easier than you think to make nature happy. And Scott Wiselow, the Director of Recycling and Waste Management at Best Buy, is giving us the inside scoop. We're glad to have you, Scott. Welcome. Thank you, Jamie. I appreciate you having me on. Of course. Okay, talk to us, if you would, about recycling, electronics, appliances, considering what we do with our waste has a tremendous impact on the environment. And with Earth Day having passed, uh, we're trying to be continually conscious, of course. Absolutely. You mentioned it earlier, Jamie, is technology is the fastest growing waste stream on the planet today. And just in the U.S. alone, we generate over 7 billion pounds of e-waste annually. And -hmm. certainly on the appliances side, from refrigerators, freezers, washers, dryers, same thing. Lots of those materials that come to end of life on an annual basis and where do they go? And many states across the country are making it illegal for those products to go into landfills today. So not only is it a legal issue, but it's also, as you said, the right thing to do to keep these materials out of landfills, get them back into the manufacturing stream via recycling and give them another life as something new. Okay, so what can you recycle legally and by doing the right thing. The big appliances that you mentioned, because we're very food-centric here, as far as your stove or range, let's say, a refrigerator you're considering replacing, if it isn't collected by the delivery person that brings your new appliance, what do you do? Another fantastic question, because those appliances are really tough to deal with. So if you are buying a new one, typically like with Best Buy, you'll get a like for like. If you buy a new one, have it delivered to your home, we'll haul it away for free. If you're not buying a new product, it's a little more difficult to get rid of large appliances. Some of those you can still dispose of in landfills. There are other um, hazardous waste dump-off facilities in municipalities and towns. A little more difficult for the large appliances than the electronics. And on the electronics side of the things, there's a lot of outlets for those materials, whether it's a, a, a Goodwill store that might be in your neighborhood or, again, those local municipal hazardous waste drop-off locations. What happens to them? Where do they go? What are they turned into? We have a select group of recyclers, both electronics recyclers and appliances. Um, they vary because there's such different products to handle, but the concept is very similar between the two groupings of products. Those products come in, we move them through our distribution centers back to our recycling partners around the country Mm -hmm. uh, with dozens of processing plants between the two areas, between electronics and appliances. And then they get the products in, and they follow the three R's, reduce, reuse, and recycle. And the first step 
is each recycler will evaluate each product coming in to see if they can actually repair it and resell it and give it a second life that way. If they can't do that, then what happens is those products, whether it's appliances or electronics, they get broken down to the commodities that they're made up of, plastics, metals, glass, and so on. Hazardous materials are removed. Everything else is separated to those commodity streams and sold into the marketplace where they get right back into the manufacturing stream and come back to us second life as all sorts of new products. I think that's amazing to consider the energy that we're saving and the betterment we're bringing to our planet in the fact that recycling or e-cycling, I know as it's called with electronics, can be made into something else. Do you have to prepare your appliances or your electronics for recycling versus disposal? A couple of key points for your listeners. I think with appliances, it's always easier if they're cleaned out so there's no food still in them or in the case of, you know, washing machines, get your laundry out. We've actually had a few folks turn in appliances where they've wanted their laundry loads back. Right, that's so where my socks get that went. Stuff out of there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it might, maybe it was you. Um, on the electronic side, uh, a couple of key points, um, and actually the, the foremost one for me is if the product, if the electronic product has a storage uh, device, a hard drive or flash drive, make sure that you wipe your personal data off of it. You don't want that data getting out, and it's a good practice. Now, I will tell you that any product that does come in through the Best Buy program and goes to our trusted electronics recyclers around the country, they are required both by industry certification and our program requirements to wipe all hard drives before they handle and move that equipment through. That's interesting. Cell phones. The first thing I think of when I think of recycling, any specific suggestions, if you would? I know it falls under the electronics category. Clear your computer, clear your cell phone. You definitely want to clear your cell phone because you've got, who knows if it's a smartphone, what you've got stored on there, your contacts. You might have your bank account information, addresses, phone numbers, all that good information that you access probably 10 times a day. You want to get that off of there. You know, you could even pull the SIM card. Now, what I will tell you, too, particularly with cell phones, if it's a newer smartphone product, it may still have value to it. So you could take it to a Best Buy store and have it evaluated by our trade-in team. And if it does have value, they'll give that back to the customer in the form of a Best Buy gift card. And if it doesn't, we will still recycle it responsibly. And typically what happens with cell phones, they do get shredded simply to ensure that that data doesn't make it out. I think that's truly amazing. Well, we're certainly cleaning up and clearing out all of us every day. We understand that technology is the fastest growing waste stream on the planet, as you mentioned. So we will all commit to doing our part to hopefully recycle and make new products that we can use daily. Give us more information, if you would, as to where to go, where to learn more, what we can do. There's a couple places that people could visit. You could go to 1-800-RECYCLING. You can check out Earth 911, and you can certainly visit bestbuy.com backslash recycling. And on that page, you'll find a drop-down menu that is state-by-state and tells you what we'll take and how many units per day you can drop off. Well, we certainly appreciate you taking the time to make our world a little bit cleaner. And thanks for sharing the insight and uh, and certainly the passion. My pleasure. Thanks for the time. So that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation. 
I hope I shared with you enough mouth-watering tricks to keep you satiated all throughout the week and that I've stirred up your imagination and appetite. Definitely enticing you with delicious conversation every Sunday right here because this is your cooking community. And be sure to check out ChefJamie.com because there are a few things you won't want to miss on the website. You'll find my weekly dish, a smoky brown sugar baby back rib that might become your signature summer recipe. So be sure to steal it. Something sweet, a grilled angel food cake with fruit salsa and a cocktail you'll love, a sangria slush. Plus, I'm sharing seasonal celebrations at chefjamie.com every week as well. And if you're growing tomatoes this summer and you have a bounty already since things have heated up, well, then my fresh summer tomato soup requires no cooking and it really is a burst of fabulous flavor. Again, you'll find those recipes at chefjamie.com. And on Facebook today, you will find my four-ingredient raspberry buckle recipe. I love to leave you on this show with what I call my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary information. And everyone seems to be loving these four-ingredient ingredient recipes. Well, I love a buckle. It's a really super simple, easy cake that comes together almost like a clafouti, and you can substitute any berry or any combination of berries for this easy cake. All you need is a little bit of canola oil, self-rising flour, of course, fresh berries, and then my super simple secret ingredient. Yes, melted vanilla ice cream. I love to use melted vanilla ice cream as a substitute or as a quick, uh, simple solution, I would call it, for so many things. It makes a great one-ingredient creme anglaise or vanilla sauce. And in this cake, it adds the sweetness and the richness. So you'll find melted vanilla ice cream in my raspberry buckle recipe posted on Facebook at Chef Jamie Gwen. Check it out. And be sure to tune in next Sunday as there's more scintillating and scrumptious conversation in your radio. I thank you for listening and hope that you did celebrate a fabulous and delicious July 4th weekend. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I hope you continue to eat well. The preceding program has been brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment.